0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Mark 1. And uh, let me just go ahead and tell you what my angst is for the morning. And I need you to make sure you're looking right up here and you catch this for the next few minutes. I am convinced that of all the places a Christian could live in 2013, of all the places a Christian could live, that you are living in the most dangerous place. Of all the places that a Christian could live, that you are living in the most dangerous place for a Christian to live. Um, It's interesting, a few years ago, uh, Christianity Today, a big Christian magazine, they did a study and uh, and wrote an article, and basically they labeled Dallas the capital of evangelicalism. Like, maybe you could think of it this way. If you think of the Bible Belt, so we're dealing with the belt when we think of the Bible Belt, that Dallas would be the buckle of the belt. I mean, it's like the center of that whole thing. And listen, there are some great things that that produces in a culture, and there are some really dangerous things that that produces. And let me just live on the dangerous side for a second to try to explain some of these. See, when you're on the buckle of the Bible belt, here's some of the implications of that. That means that we've got a culture. There's more mega churches in Dallas than virtually anywhere else on the planet. Like, a couple of thousand member churches are like around the next corner. You know, I mean, it's just crazy in our culture what, what's happened here. So, so we've got a culture in our area where people flood into churches. I mean, by the thousands come into churches. But not because they have a real genuine love for Jesus, but because culturally it's just what people do. My family goes to church, so I go to church. My brother goes, so I go. My, my parents go, so I go. That it's just the thing to do. Like church going in our culture in some ways is like a hobby for people. Now it's a, let's just be straight. It's a terrible hobby. There are better hobbies to have. You should definitely drop that one if this is your hobby and pick up a better one. It, it's a terrible hobby. But this is what's produced in our culture. We've got this massive amount of people who ad, admire Jesus, but so few people who actually are following him. See, this is the culture that you find yourself immersed in. You've got a million people who are cheering his name, but so few who are actually picking up a cross. Okay, this is culturally where you find yourself. It is the most dangerous place for a Christian to live. Because here's what's happened in our culture. There is a a quasi-Christian view of what it means to kind of be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, that is very far from what the Bible describes. So so we've got this view of of being a Christian, that that we say a prayer, that we raise our hand at the right time in a sermon, that we walk down an aisle, and so we're good with God. It doesn't matter that He makes no difference in our daily life. We're we're fine with with God. We've got this kind of version of Christianity in our culture where— where it's kind of a take it or leave it. If Jesus kind of fits into today, great. But if it's going to be an inconvenience, then we'll kind of move on and grab something else. So so now think about this. You're immersed in this culture. And the problem with culture is you can't see it when you're living in it. You're immersed into this culture that, that is, when it thinks of what a Christian is, is so far from what the Bible would describe it to be. When it thinks about what a disciple is, it is very far from what the Bible would describe as a disciple. And listen, this is where you're living. Like chances are some of that has seeped into you. This is why it's the most dangerous place for a Christian to live. Not because, not because you're going to probably get killed for your faith tomorrow. That's that's not the reason it's dangerous. It's because you're going to be seduced into a watered down version of what it means to be a Christian. And ironically, God has called me to plant a church right in the middle of that. I still can't get over that. But, but it, 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 in part, it terrifies me. Because I read like Matthew 7, where in the middle of Matthew 7, Jesus is going to say this, that you need to enter by a narrow gate. For, for wide, is the, wide is the gate and wide is the, the, the road. Easy is the road that leads to destruction and many are on it. And, and narrow is the gate, and hard is the road that leads to life, and few are on it, right? And, and we live in a culture that has convinced itself, as it's on the wide road, that it's, actually, that it's on the narrow road, that is bought into, it's fine with God, although it's walking down the road to destruction. It's terrifying for me to even think about preaching in a culture like this. Because I know that so many people are coming in and coming out convinced that they are right with God when they're really not. Like at the end of Matthew 7, I think are some of the most haunting words in all of the Bible. Where Jesus is going to say that, that on that day, there's going to be a many call out to me, Lord, Lord, that never knew me. There's going to be a lot on that day that they're going to say, Lord, Lord, but didn't I prophesy in your name? I mean, didn't I do all of these good works in your name? Didn't I do all of these good things in your name? Cast out demons in your name. But but yet, Jesus says, there's going to be a day where I look at you and say, listen, I I never knew you. Never. Depart from me. It's that culture. Now, okay, now in this culture, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is so, so, so important that we get a grip on. Jesus is about to recalibrate our minds and hearts around what it looks like to be a disciple. What it looks like to be a Christian. This is what he's doing here. So let's read this passage together one more time. Mark chapter 1 verse 16. This is Jesus saying, listen, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is how you can know if you're one. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now I want you just real quickly to connect these two passages together. Last week we looked at verses 14 and 15. Jesus, his first sermon, preaches the gospel and he shows you what the internal response to the gospel is. Look at verse 15. Mark 1, verse 15, we repent and believe. That is the internal response to the gospel message. And now in verse 16 through 20, Jesus is about to show us the external response. Like what it looks like to live in repentance and belief. He's going to show us that what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian, is that we're actually following Jesus. Like this is going to be a novel idea, right? That what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple— same, same word, there's synonyms. Christian disciple. It means that we are actually following Jesus. That's what it means. Okay, now here's really the pressing question of the morning. The pressing question of the morning is going to go like this. Are you following Jesus? Not are you coming to church or not? Not are you fitting into a crowd? Not do you like Jesus? Not do you kind of talk about Jesus someday? It's are you following Pursuing, running after. Like, are you following Jesus? Okay. Now, here's here's what I want to do today. I'm going to try to give you five things that kind of come around this call to kind of clarify what this call is that Jesus is is giving us when He looks at these four men and says, "and and say, follow me." Like, what is that? So, five things. Here's the first one: this call to follow Jesus. Here's the first one. First of all, this call, and this is really important, just to see first you know, first rattle out of the box here, is this call is full of grace. This is a call when he says, follow me, that is absolutely grace-filled. Okay, now think about this. In the first century Jewish world, what we see Jesus doing here is absolutely unprecedented. It It has... No basis for it. It is bizarre in a first century world. It would feel like if you were one of the disciples that this has got to be unbiblical that he's doing this. In the first century Jewish world, the rabbis would never approach the student like the teacher, would never approach the student. It was always the student's job to approach the rabbi. So the student had to muster up the courage to go confront the rabbi and to muster up the right words to basically get out, can I follow you? That's how the thing went down. Rabbis never approached students. Students always approached rabbis. But we see a drastically different picture here, don't we? We see Jesus coming after the students we see jesus approaching the students we see jesus walking toward the students and we see jesus inviting them into it come and follow me those are grace-filled words And, and isn't it great to know that god is still doing this sort of thing He is still walking after and he is still pursuing men and women. Listen, this is what makes Christianity distinct from every other religion. That we have a God who comes after us. This is why in John 15, Jesus can say, listen, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I came after you. I pursued you. I tracked you down. That's how the thing went, right? We've got a God that doesn't sit back with arms folded waiting for us to come to him. He is actively pursuing us. That is the great news of the gospel, and he is still actively pursuing men and women. But but not only is it grace-filled because of the call that Jesus makes here, it's also grace-filled when you think about those that he called. If somebody were about to task you with the job of assembling a team, that are going to turn the world upside down. So you go pick your team, and it's got to be like the world-changing team. Can I just tell you, these are not the guys you would have picked. You would not have picked Peter who had like a foot-shaped mouth that he was born with, right? If you just keep reading, you know that he fit his, his foot into his mouth like repeatedly. Got called Satan one time by Jesus. If you're thinking James and John, they're not the people you'd start with. If you'll remember, we're going to get to this passage uh, probably in like nine years It's in like Mark 9 or 10, where uh, Jesus has just told them, listen, I'm about to be crucified and killed. And all of a sudden, James and John say, hey, now which one of us can be greatest in the kingdom? I mean, they they are totally like missing everything here, right? If you picture the moment where the teams are divided on the playground, these men are the last people picked. They're not the first people picked. If you keep reading in Mark, you get to Mark 2.15 and you see that Jesus also offers this invitation to, to Matthew, to Levi. He is a tax collector. Now in first century world, if you could think of like the scum of society, whatever that is, Matthew as a tax collector was like several rungs underneath that. A tax collector was the most despicable person in first century Jewish society. And Jesus looks at him, the most despicable, and says, I want you too. Grace even goes to you. And and you may be a person that today someone invited and, and you don't know Jesus yet. There's never been a moment where you have stepped into a relationship with Jesus, and, and you may be the person that when you look back over your life, you see a million mess ups. You see a million different places where you have sinned on a varsity level. And you might be thinking, maybe I have sinned my way out of the grace of God. Maybe I am too far gone. And just let this be an encouragement to you. Like when Jesus is calling these four men, Matthew a little bit later on, when he's calling these men, you know what that's supposed to be a picture for you and I? That's supposed to be a picture of this. You cannot sin your way out of the grace of God, you're never gonna be beyond grace. That you're never going to be beyond repair. That God can always rescue and redeem. That you're never going to, you're never going to exclude yourself by what you do from that. Now I want you to feel that if that's you in the room this morning. So first thing about this call is that it's grace-filled. Here's the second thing about the call. And really the the thing that uh, pops right off the page when you read it is the call is really radical. Like th- this is a wild thing that we see going down in front of us here. So I want you to see how Mark deliberately sets this up. Mark deliberately sets it up like this. Jesus comes into these four people. He walks toward these four people. And uh, with, with really no warning, he, he looks, Jesus looks at these four fishermen and, and says, follow me. Just, just follow me. Now Mark doesn't give any of like the internal dialogue. Mark doesn't give any of like, You know, I I can just picture Peter thinking this. Is this a wise idea? Is this a dumb idea? Would this be wisdom or an expression of faith? Am I going to go back and talk to my wife? Am I not going to talk? I mean, all, all this internal talk that's definitely happening in the moment, we get none of that. We get none of the conversations. We don't see a conversation between John and James and their father. We see none of that. Mark is deliberately setting it up so, so we go, we're going to get a vivid sense of the radical nature of this, that Jesus comes up to these four men and say, follow me. And these four men instantly drop everything. Now think about that. Everything, and they follow. See, Mark, Mark is trying to clue us into the radical nature of that. Jesus issues a command, a call, come on. And these men instantly go. Immediately respond. Okay, now when you're thinking about this idea of following, whenever you follow something, that means you're going like from here to there. And if you're over there, it means you're no longer here. Like so part of what's implied in following something or someone means that you are also leaving some things behind, doesn't it? So when you follow means that you've got to let go of other things. And I just want to tease that out and work through two different things that have to be let go as you're following Jesus. And the first one's going to be really simple and obvious. We'll just call it evil things. So it's the things that you would look at and instantly think those are not good things, those are bad things. Yeah, you got to let those go. So we could be talking things like this, sexual immorality. We could be talking greed. We could be talking unrighteous anger and jealousy and envy. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we let go of these things. This is what part of what Jesus means in, in Mark 1 when he tells us to repent and to believe the gospel. Part of what it means to repent is that we are turning from those sorts of things as we walk toward Jesus. So, so there are the category of, we'll just call them evil things, bad things that we have to let go of as we're following. If we're going to follow Jesus, it means that I, we've got to let go of these things. But there's also another category of things that's a little more difficult to see. And, and we'll call this the category of the good things. And look at this passage, and it shows it really clearly in this passage. Look at verse 18. Jesus has just said, follow me. And then you get to verse 18, and it says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. In other words, they left their job. They they just turned their back on their job, and now they have quit their job, and they're following Jesus. You keep reading down, and uh, verse 20, and immediately he called them, talking about James and John, and they left their father Zebedee. In other words, family in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So, so here's what we're seeing here, is that to follow Jesus also means that we're gonna have to let go of some good things in our life. Listen, family's not a bad thing. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a gift to, to enjoy and to steward. A job is not a bad thing. It's actually a really great thing. But listen, because we are sinful people, we have a unique ability to take some of God's greatest gifts to us and make them God-like things in our life. See, this is the problem. This is really walking us into idolatry. An idol is anything in your life, and typically it's good things, not bad things. Anything in your life that has been inflated to the point where it is functioning as a God in your life. To where you are looking to it for what only God can give. So so it's when we start looking to a job for what only God can give. It's when we start to look to a family for what only God can give. But maybe you can think of it this way. Idolatry is when we wrap our hand around anything other than Jesus. So it's when you wrap your hand around your home and your home becomes the non-negotiable. It's when you wrap your hand around your paycheck and your paycheck is what becomes the non-negotiable. It's when you wrap it around one of your possessions, and that possession becomes the non negotiable in your life. I, Jesus is negotiable. He's on the chopping block over here. This is the non negotiable. It's when you put your kid in your hand and say, This is no longer negotiable, God. That this is no longer on the table. That my hand is wrapped around this thing. See, part of what it means to follow Jesus means that we have to unwind our hand. From even the good things in our life. See, maybe you could think of it this way: you can't follow Jesus and worship your idols at the same time. You can't. You you can't follow Jesus and at the same time have your hand closed around your house, around your family, around your job, around anything. You you can't do it. So, So part of what it means to follow Jesus means that we are excavating idols. So can I can I just ask you the question this morning? Is there anything in your life right now that is keeping you from full-on pursuit of Jesus? Anything. A- anything that you've closed your hand around and said, God, this is no longer negotiable. A- unless this comes with it, I'm not following you. Unless this goes along the-, the path with us, we're not in. Is there anything right now in your life that, that-, that you've closed your hand around that's become an idol for you? functioning as a little g God in your life. Maybe you could think about this call and the radical nature of it like this, is that Jesus is saying in, in this call to come and follow me. He is saying this, I am demanding that I have your absolute allegiance, that nothing else in your life gets the same allegiance that I have, that I reign supreme over all of your life. This is what he's saying here. And this is what he says continually throughout his ministry, his life and ministry. He's continually reminding his disciples and the crowds of the same thing. That what it means to follow me means that you, that you are making me, that you are putting me in a position of absolute allegiance. I, I'm gonna give you one example of this. This is Luke chapter 14. It'll be up on the screen for you as well, just for easy access. Luke 14, verse 25. I want you just to listen to Jesus, the words of Jesus as he's talking to this crowd. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, these great crowds, verse 26, if anyone, so so this call to follow, this call to, to make God like ultimate in your life, like where your ultimate allegiance rests, that call is for every disciple, every Christian, not just a special class of Christians. Like what it means to follow Jesus means that he is ultimate in our life. So he says if anyone comes to me, wants to follow me, wants to run after me, wants to be my disciple, and does not—listen to these words—hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now those are strong words, aren't they? So what in the world does that mean, right? So in other places Jesus is going to say don't hate, and now he's telling us to hate. What's he talking about here? And I love what one author said. I think he, he puts it in perfectly in a sentence here. He says that what Jesus is talking about is not you actively hating your family and your life and those things. It's not you actively hating those. It's, it's comparatively hating those. It, it's saying this, that if you measure your love for me, your pursuit of me, your full investment into me, if you measure that compared to anything else in your life, anything else looks like hate next to it. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying you've got to hate your family. He's saying, comparatively speaking, that a love for me, and allegiance for me, is to reign so supreme in your life that every other love you have in your life looks like hate when you compare it to me. See, this is the radical nature that Jesus is calling us to. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a raise your hand and then you go on with life. It is a full-on pursuit of this man, Jesus. It it is a life fully invested into Jesus. Let me just ask you the question. Is there anything right now in your life competing for, for allegiance with Jesus? Is there anything right now that you have closed your hand around that has, is no longer negotiable? Anything right now? Anything right now that does not look like hate when you compare it with your love for Jesus? See, this is what he's, when he means follow me, this is what he means. To love me, come after me, pursue me like that. So this call is radical in that regard. Here's the third one. The call is life-altering, life-altering. Look at verse 17. I love verse 17. It says this, And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And when you follow me, this is what I'm going to do, he's saying. And I will make you become. Like, I'm going to be committed to this. I'm going to move you into this, press you into this. I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is saying this. If you're a follower of mine, it means that you're also a fisher. Maybe you could turn it around. If you're not a fisherman or a fisherwoman, that means you're not a follower. See, he's saying, like, when, when you follow me, th- this is what you're going to be becoming. This is what you're going to be walking into, is that you're going to be a part of fishing. Now, okay, just to give you the, the imagery, the imagery uh, across the Bible of what, like, this fishing kind of metaphor, kind of what it means We've got to go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, anytime you have water mentioned, oceans mentioned, the sea mentioned, fishing mentioned, it's normally used to describe chaos and judgment. Okay, let me just give you one uh, place where the fishing imagery is used in the Old Testament and you see this clearly. This will be on the screen for you. It's Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Jeremiah says this, or God through Jeremiah, Behold, I am sending... "'For for many fishers,' declares the Lord, "'and they shall catch them. "'And afterward I will send for many hunters, "'and they shall hunt them uh, from every mountain and every hill "'and out of the clefts of the rock. "'For my eyes are on all of their ways. "'They are not hidden from me, "'nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes.' but first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So here's fishing imagery in the Old Testament. It's used to describe judgment. The picture of this in Jeremiah is people getting caught like fish for judgment. But Jesus totally turns that picture on its head in the New Testament in this passage and says, you're going to become fishers of men, not to catch men and women for judgment, but to rescue them from judgment. Like, I'm going to be welcoming you in on this great gospel enterprise of catching men and women. I'm inviting you into that. You're going to be a part of that with me. I'm going to give you that role to play in the kingdom of God to fish. Now, let's talk our church just for a second. Our church, our church family desperately needs to become better fishermen and better fisherwoman. Now, I want you to feel that. Now, I, I, we've talked about this several times over the last few months, that we're really inviting you in to intercede on behalf of our church so that God will grow us into better fishers. That God, will, God will make us better on the mission, more fruitful missionaries. That, that God would do that for us. That he would make us, as we live as sent people, that we would be living much more faithful and much more fruitful lives on the mission of God. Now I hope that God might in his grace use this passage this morning to help in that. So I'm going to press this imagery, I hope not too far, of fishing. And I want to just pull out a couple of things I hope will be helpful to us as we try to live as the missionary people of God, as sent people, as men and women who are actively trying to fish, be be used by God to rescue people from judgment. So a couple things about fishing that I hope will be helpful. Here's the first thing. And I don't know if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, But if you are, if you've ever been fishing or been with someone that likes fishing and you've been with them while they're fishing, you'll know what I'm about to say to be true about fishing. Fishing requires patience, amen? It requires some serious patience. Now, my dad loves to fish. And so growing up, my dad and I, I mean, fishing was kind of one of the normal ways that we got to spend a lot of time with each other. And, uh, you know, As a young guy growing up fishing, and my my younger son right now, Caleb, loves to fish, and he's teaching me the same thing, that one of the things that you don't have when you're young and you're learning to fish is patience. I could ruin a fishing trip in about 15 seconds if the fish weren't biting. I mean, I was a fair weather fisherman. I mean, it, it was one of those things where if the fish weren't biting, I was finding something else to do. But my dad was that guy who, it didn't matter if they were biting or not. It's just one cast after another. One cast, I mean, it goes on like all day long, right? And I'll never forget this one time I was looking at my dad. I've already checked out. I'm trying to ruin the fishing trip so we can actually go home. And he's just still fishing. I'm like, dad, why are you going to throw that lure back in the same spot that you've already thrown it like 14 other times? And he looked at me, and I'll never forget these words. He said, uh, well, here's why because I actually think that the next cast is going to be the one that he bites. I don't actually believe that. And can I just say that that is great, that is great imagery for us as we're living on the mission of God. He, listen, here is the job that God has given you to water and to sow seeds. So you sow them in and you start watering. And then we patiently wait for the bite. We patiently wait for God to grow the seed. And you know what we all have a natural tendency to do when it comes to praying for people and and trying to be used by God for the salvation of other people? We all have a natural tendency to give up on really rebellious people, don't we? I mean, they've just rebelled so far that, that it feels like to us that they're beyond saving. They're beyond grace. They have just gone too far. Can I just remind you that God saved you? Can I just remind you of that? That God actually saved you one time, that God actually met you in the middle of your rebellion, probably in an unexpected situation, and He rescued you. And so I I think there's just a great encouragement for you and I in the room that we need to be people who are praying patiently, who are sowing gospel seeds patiently, who are watering those seeds patiently asking, praying for God to move, for God to do, for God to save, and for us to patiently be expecting it. So so the first thing about fishing is we need to be patient people. And when we are thinking fishers of men, we need to be patient in our evangelism, patient on the mission of God. Here's the second thing. And uh, I hope I don't insult you because I'm about to state the obvious with this next one. And so when, when it comes to fishing, fishing actually requires you to be near fish. But, I mean, it actually requires that. And so my son Caleb loves to fish. He's got a spider, uh, Spider-Man fishing pole. It's about that long. And he literally thinks, as long as I've got that pole in my hand and a lure on that pole, and as long as I'm throwing the lure out, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm fishing. So I could be on our back patio throwing it out into the middle of grass, and I'm fishing. I could be in the bathtub. I'm fishing. I could be in our living room. And as long as I've got the pole and the lure and I'm throwing it, it feels to Caleb like he's fishing. But he's not fishing if there's no fish around. All he's doing is playing, right? And I think it's a good word for us in the room. A lot of us think that we are fishing when there's no fish around us. Like, like this is like leading us into to this reality. That we actually have to be people who get to know people who don't know Jesus. And can I just tell you one of the reasons that churches like ours see so few adult conversions is because so few people in the church family actually know people who need converting. Are we following that? And and when we talk about like getting to know people who don't know Jesus, we're not talking about like on a peripheral level. Like, yeah, I know Bob. He works with me. We see each other a couple of times a week and I know his name. That's not the kind of knowing that we're talking about. We're talking about the sort of knowing that invites people into your life. Like they actually make their way to, to your dinner table. You know them. They know you. You know each other on that level. They know your family. You know their family. You, you know what they fear in life. You know what they hope in, in life. Like you know them like that. That's the kind of know we're talking about. And I just want to give this warning because if we're not careful— The longer you become a Christian, the longer you are a Christian, the more likely it is that every relational slot in your life is going to be filled with Christians. I mean, are you aware of that, that just how inertia moves you in that direction? That the longer you're a Christian, the more likely it is that every friend you have, like deep friendship you have, is going to be with another Christian. Okay, now, can you just hear this this morning? If that's you right now, all of your friendships, other Christians, that's not okay. You can't be a fisherman, a fisherwoman, if all of your friendships are with other Christians. It means that you have to be very diligent and intentional about how to open up your life so people who don't know Jesus, coworkers, neighbors, friends, that, that your kids play on the same team, that, that you're opening up your life and inviting them in. That you're getting to know people like across the dinner table sort of a no. I mean, this would be a great thing to talk about in your home groups this week. Are, do we know people as a home group that don't know Jesus? Do we know them on a personal level? Are we inviting people into our lives who don't know Jesus? I mean, what a great conversation on a home group level to press that deep this week. So second thing about fishing is fishing requires you to be near fish. Here's the third thing about fishing is fishing requires the right bait. It requires the right bait. So if you just think about fishing, just for a second, you don't have to know a lot about fishing for this to make sense. It's it's pretty, uh, you know, put one and two together and you see that if you want to catch a fish, you actually have to throw something out that the fish is going to be interested in biting. Right? That generally speaking, to catch a fish, it requires you to throw bait out that the fish is interested in. So here's what that means practically for you and I. It means that as we are following Jesus and as he is making us into fishers of men, that there is going to be a time as we're following Jesus where Jesus says, you know them and now I want you to open up your mouth and speak about the gospel. It means that there's going to be times where God is going to say, like right now in this moment, I want you to talk about all that I have done for this person in Jesus. I want you to open up your mouth and proclaim that. Talk about that. There's going to be times where it leads to that. Now here is, here is the catch in our culture. You've got to figure out the way to do that, the right words to do that with that punch through our quasi-Christian culture that has hijacked most of the biblical words and watered them down to things that the Bible no longer— I mean, it doesn't even register with the Bible. So let me give you an illustration of this. If you went in your neighborhood and said— "Told 10 of your neighbors— and said, are you a believer? You know what 9 out of 10 are going to say? Yes, I'm a believer. How dare you ask that, Right? Of course I am. I've grown up in church. I've been around this thing. There's been a moment where I raised a hand, signed a card, walked down aisle. I did something. Yes, I'm a believer. In our culture, generally, everyone's a believer. Okay, now, so at the end of the day, we've got to figure out how to punch through with the right words to rescue a big biblical word called belief or faith to restore it to, to like it's biblical proportions. That our culture has hijacked the word belief to mean something far less than the Bible means with the word belief and the word faith. So I'll just give you an illustration of how this has played out for me recently. Talking with a guy here recently, and uh, I just asked, you know, for him to kind of walk me through his story, his life and kind of where he's been and how God has intersected with that. And uh, so so he walks me through the story and it is a lot of real difficulty and heartache that, that make up various parts of it. Man, it is like, Wow. Um, that, that is really difficult. And it was just interesting in listening to that story, God never intersected with it. And, and so I just asked the question, like how how does God intersect with that? And his first kind of response to that is, Well, I, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. And and so I just tried to as gently as possible say that, you know, the problem is like everyone in our culture is a believer. But, but the problem is our culture has hijacked that word to mean something far less than the Bible means with that word. Like in our culture, when people use the word belief, here's what they mean by it. That I know a set of facts. So, so I know this, this set of facts that Jesus, or that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life in place of my very imperfect life. He died on the cross for our sin and that he rose from the dead on the third day. I, I know, like I'm aware of those facts. And not only am I aware of it, but I agree with those facts. And 99 out of 100 people in our culture, when they think about what does it mean to believe the gospel, here's what they think. It means me being aware of the facts of the gospel and actually agreeing that those facts are true and that those facts happen. And the problem with that is that James 2 says even the demons believe those facts and believe that they're true. Even the demons believe those things. So what we're banking on, generally speaking, in our culture to save us, saving faith, is the exact same things the demons have. And I just want to clear, they're not saved, right? I mean, that that is not working for them. And so in the middle of that conversation, I I tried to use imagery from an old Puritan. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And one of the ways that he described saving faith, he said, "If, if you can think about honey." And I want to tell you about honey. Honey has a a beautiful, rich, golden color. It is thick, kind of pours out slowly. It is the sweetest thing you have ever tasted. It is incredible. And see, what most people in our culture think is, okay, so I know the facts about honey, and I can even articulate the facts about honey to other people. And we're banking that that's saving faith. But Jonathan Edwards is saying, no, that, that's not saving faith. It, it takes you knowing the facts and agreeing with the facts, but it takes something more to be saving faith. What saving faith is, is not you knowing and agreeing. It's when honey actually hits your tongue and your taste buds explode for the first time when it tasted. That's what saving faith is. It's not just knowing these facts about Jesus came, lived, died, rose from the dead. It's not even agreeing with those. It's when the Spirit of God does something with those facts, when those facts land on your heart in such a way that your heart explodes under them. That for the first time, these, these facts about Jesus and what he's done, that all these facts that were theoretical, that just seemed like abstract things, now settle over you and become real to you. That's what saving faith is. And it was really interesting. He looked back at me and he said, uh, if that's what it means, I don't have it. But, but can you see there? If you throw the, the, the bait of belief out there, that does not happen. We've got to figure out words to cut through the, 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 the Christian culture that we're in and its assumption of belief to restore what it means to believe in the Bible. That it is the Spirit of God making these things about Jesus come alive to you so that when you think Jesus, it is tangible. It is like real to you. It's not just theory. Like God is actually a father. Like Jesus is actually a friend and a savior and a redeemer. Those are not theory. They're not abstract. It's the Spirit of God making those real. And it was so incredible. The conversation turned to, here's the great news of the gospel— You can have that. The good news of the gospel is that God saves and gives that. But can you see how we've got to be people who develop a vocabulary and words to be able to speak into our cultural climate that actually throws the right bait out that can trigger strikes? So so if we're going to be good fishermen, it means that we've got to learn how to get the right bait on the hook. We've got to learn a good vocabulary. Let me just give you one more. To be a good fisherman— it requires skill. It requires skill. You know, there was always a frustrating thing about fishing with my dad. And and here was really the, the core of what was frustrating. He always caught more fish than me. He always did. I could never match him. I mean, he was always like a couple in front. And man, I was the guy that we were counting every fish. And I could never get in front of him. So so here's what I would do. Man, when we're fishing, I know exactly where he's throwing it. And if he catches one, I'm probably throwing it right on top of him, right? I I know exactly what he has on. And if his lure is doing a little better than mine, I'm changing it and I'm putting his on. I'm watching how far he's letting it sink, how he drags it back. I'm looking at everything he's doing because he is a more skilled fisherman than me. And and can I just say that the, the way he got to become a good fisherman, this is the only way you become a good fisherman. You have to fish. Like fishing is the primary way you become a better fisherman. So just jump over and apply this to evangelism, gospel and missionary and living on the mission of God. You know, I, I am fully aware that when we talk about gospel conversations, about inviting people into our lives who don't know Jesus, that for most of us in the room, we go into like panic mode. That's, that feels so daunting and scary. But can I just encourage you? Here's how you get better at it. You, you just start fishing. Here's how you get better at it. You just invite someone into your home and get to know them. Here's how you get better at it. When the Spirit of God says, speak, you actually start talking. And you talk about how Jesus has saved you, what he's done in your life. You talk about what he's teaching you. You ask questions and you listen. We become better fishermen by just fishing. We become better evangelists by just evangelizing and loving and sharing and caring for people. And I I love this, what what Jesus says. I want this to be real encouragement to you this morning, especially those who feel like you're always going to be like a second-class fisherman and a second-rate fisherman. Look at what he says in verse 17. Who is it that's going to make us into good fishermen? Who is it? Verse 17. And I, that's Jesus, saying, I, Jesus, I will make you become... Fishers of men. Like Jesus is saying, "Listen, I am committed to pressing you into being becoming a better fisherman. I am committed to that. One hundred percent committed to making you better at this, to molding you into this, so that you will become a wonderful fisherman." And listen, can we not lose the wonder of what Jesus is saying here? There is not one person in the room who is not in incredible need of redemption, and God is looking at us and saying. And in my grace, I'm going to use you as a tool in the redemption of other people. There's not one of us in here who is not in great need of grace from God. And God is saying, and in my mercy toward you, I'm going to use you as a tool to extend grace to other people. God is inviting us into the enterprise of evangelism and mission, of rescuing people out of hell and judgment. He's inviting you into that. I mean, don't lose sight of the wonder of that. That God is saying, listen, come and follow me and let's do this together. I mean, that, that is a wonderful thing that God is doing there. And number four, and we're going to hurry up through these last couple. Number four, the call is life-expanding. When you think about this call to follow Jesus, it is life expanding. Now think about these four guys. They're on the shores of Galilee. They're fishing. It's just another day in the life of four fishermen. And all of a sudden Jesus walks up and says, follow me. It was a defining moment for these guys. And listen, those defining moments in our life, you might have one, two, three of them in your entire life. It was one of those moments that alter the course of the rest of your life. One of those moments for these guys. And they looked at Jesus and said, yes. Okay, now can I just tell you when they said yes, what happened to them? In that moment of saying yes, they were rescued. Listen to this. They were rescued from a small life. They were rescued from a life that just, you know, about their little kingdom, about their little business and about their little things that they've got going. They were rescued from that sort of a small life. And they were invited into a God-sized life. And can I just tell you what so many of us right now need in this room? We need to be rescued from a small life. A life that, I mean, we just can't see past ourselves, Can't see past what we've got going, this little thing that we've got going. We just can't see past our own lives. And you know what this call from God is doing? It's rescuing you from that. It's, It's inviting you into something bigger than just you. Can you picture what it would be like to look at a seven-year-old little girl and say, hey, can you, can you write me an essay on what it would mean to fall in love and to get married? Can you write me an essay on that? The problem is they've got no framework. They've got no clue as of the ups and downs of marriage, the difficult twists and turns in marriage, the hardships of marriage, the journey of marriage, the joys of marriage, they've got no idea when they started to write that essay. And can I just tell you, as a Christian, when you say yes to the call of God to come and follow Him, you are at least that far away from knowing what's in store for you. Just hear that. You are at least that far away of knowing what's around the next bend what this journey is going to be like for you. You are at least that far away from knowing the ups and downs, the hardships and the heartaches, the journey and the joy of following him. You're at least that far away. It was interesting. I was talking to a guy this week. He's about 60 years old and he's a consultant for churches now. So he was doing some consulting and uh, he was in a room full of pastors and the pastors were trying to figure out this decision. Are they going to do it? Not going to do it. And, uh, you know, they had everything mapped out with this decision. Here's plan A, plan B, plan C, and all the way to Z. They've got it all—I mean, every detail, they were trying to map it out. And it was interesting. He said, man, it was just like the Spirit led me, just to inject this in. He said, 'Um, you know, might the best part of the journey with God, might the best part be not knowing all the answers to the questions and just saying yes when God calls— Might that be the best part of the journey? Not to have like every little detail mapped out where all the uncertainty is gone, but even in the midst of all this uncertainty, like these guys were just mending their nets and all of a sudden he says, follow me. They drop it all and do it. Might that be the best thing in life? Did you say yes when God says do something? Did you say yes when God calls and says, follow me? And lastly, and we'll end with this. Number five. This call is doable. It's doable. Um, A couple of weeks ago, Laura and I were uh, were cleaning out our attic, kind of rearranging our attic. I don't know how many of you have had the joy of that lately, but it's terrible. And uh, in the middle of that, in the middle of that, we came across a container, and here was the label on the container, sentimental. Now, I was scared to touch that box. Laura starts crying just when she sees sentimental written on it, right? So we, uh, we open it up, and it was like a journey to the past. It had all of these notes that we had written back and forth when we were dating. And listen, I'm talking like three million of them stacked into this thing. And, uh, you know, I'm looking through it. it had all of this stuff that I'd done back in the day— uh, you know, I came across one thing where I had this big jar. I decorated it up all nice, painted a couple of things on it, and I'd stuffed into this jar. I, guys, take some notes right here. This is A plus game right here, okay? <laughs> I stuffed into this jar 101 reasons why I loved Laura. So, I mean, it's, and I'm telling you, that's just one of many. There was stuff, packed. I mean, this was gold in this thing, right? <laughs> and so I'm looking at that and... Uh, I mean, first of all, it just made me reminisce and think back, but it, it made me think about how crazy we are in that moment of loving someone. You know, when you just trip and you just fell smooth in love with the person and the ridiculous things that you do in the middle of that, right? I mean, just watch people start dating other people and watch the crazy stuff they do. I mean, Laura and I, we spent most of our time apart in, in our kind of courtship. So literally, I'm on the phone like hours on end with this lady, right? And so it it made me think back, and if somebody would have said at 18 years old, Rodney, you know what it's going to take to marry someone? You know what it's going to take? It's going to take you meeting them, and then it's going to take three billion hours you talking to them on the phone. And it's going to take about three million letters you're going to write back and forth. Rodney, you're even going to have to think of 101 reasons why you love them. I think at 18, I'm probably saying this. That feels a little demanding. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm signing on the line for that. I mean, that makes single life look a lot better almost instantly right there, right? I mean, it feels really demanding and really um, draining, right? And listen, here's my fear first when we see th- this, whole, this whole call of God to come and follow, drop everything and come on that it can have that sense of being draining and demanding. Can I just tell you what happened to me when I was 21 years old? I met this girl named Laura. And in that moment, there was something that happened to the deepest parts of my soul. Like, I love this girl. And I found myself doing crazy things in light of that. Things I never thought I'd do. I was writing 101 reasons. I was on the phone countless hours. I was writing notes left and right. I mean, it was, it was A plus stuff that was coming out of this thing. And can I just tell you, never once did that feel demanding or draining. Never once. And listen, I don't particularly enjoy writing notes. I don't, I don't really like doing it. Definitely don't love doing it. But can I tell you something else? I actually loved Laura. So it made writing notes a breeze. I was glad to do it. And, and do you see what's happening here? When, when your soul becomes... In love, like that with a, with another thing or another person, all of these things that used to feel so draining and boring and demanding, all of a sudden seem real doable. I mean, maybe even better than that, they actually seem desirable. Not because you like the thing, but because you love them. And let that be a metaphor of how this works out. Do you know why this is not a demanding and a draining command that Jesus gives us? Do you know why this is doable? Because of the gospel. That's why. Because we actually have Jesus. That's why. See, it's when Jesus becomes to us like that. Like we love Jesus. We're pursuing Jesus. We want Jesus. We're desiring Jesus. It's when we start to see Jesus like that, that everything changes with his commands that these calls on our life like, come and follow me and lose everything. Take up your cross and follow me. It's when things like that actually become desirable. And and do you know how to start seeing Jesus more and more like that? It takes you considering the gospel, you thinking about the gospel. You know, when you think about this passage with James and John, they were called to leave the boat and to leave their father. When you see that passage, you've got to think this. Jesus has done everything he's asked from them. Everything. There was a moment a couple of thousand years ago where Jesus left the boat with his father and he came to earth. He strapped on human flesh. He lived a perfect life in place of our very imperfect one. He died on the cross, crushed for our sin, ripped to shreds for our sin so that you and I could be rescued. And it's when we start seeing Jesus like that, that these commands not only are doable, but desirable. Amen? And I pray it would be that for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.